This is John Payne, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 44, for Monday, December 5th, 2011. Well, today I have the privilege of bringing you an interview with writer, producer, author, John Finch from the UK. And this is incredibly exciting because this is actually the first interview on the podcast so far with somebody across the ocean. So this is going to be very, very cool. And not only that, um, just like Eric Caldor shared about some of the history of Hollywood writing in TV, John Finch is going to share some of the history of writing in the UK. So um, he's got stories going way, way back, including um, going back to 1960, where you may have heard of the show Coronation Street. Coronation Street is actually in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's longest running TV soap opera. And he started working as a trainee there in 1960, wrote for 10 years on Coronation Street. He eventually became a story editor and producer. And after Coronation Street, he created the series A Family at War, which took over from Coronation Street as the UK's top TV series for that year. It went 52 episodes, 52 one hours, and aired to great acclaim, not only in the UK, but around the world. Amazingly, as an example, in Norway, even on its third run 20 years later, it was ranked the, the number one TV series of that year. Pretty amazing stuff. He followed that up by creating the series Sam, which also was released to great acclaim. And amazingly, he wrote every single episode of its 39-episode run. In 1975, he was given the award of Best Series Writer by the Writers Guild of Great Britain and also received the Broadcasting Press Guild Critics Award for Sam in the same year. Um, so I think you're going to love this. Look back into U into the UK's TV writing, and uh, and also he's got some great um, tips on putting together your own series. He's obviously a very successful uh, writer at creating these, these great worlds. Uh, and so I hope you enjoy it. It's going to be on in just a second. First, I do want to remind you of the contest that's going on right now, and that is step one. You order bite-sized television. Uh, you can get, go to the podcast site at tvwriterpodcast.com. Order bite-sized television by Ross Brown. Uh, you just click on the store link on the website, and you, you can find that book. Read that over the holidays, and put together some questions that you'd like to ask Ross. He's going to be on the podcast in the first week of January. So by January 1st, send your questions in. And if your, if your questions are sent in, you will get entered into a draw to win this book, An Insider's Guide to TV's Hottest Market, Reality TV by Troy DeVold. So if you want to win this book, order this book and read it and ask some questions. Very, very easy. Um, I uh, I do want to mention that the video tips for this week is uh, probably not 
applicable to everybody. It's a very specific topic that will be of interest to you if you're setting up post-production, particularly for a web series or independent feature. And that's that it's going to be talking about setting up a PCI expansion enclosure. Uh, this could also be of interest if you... Um, or do a lot of gaming, or if for any reason you don't have enough PCI slots in your computer. But because it's not uh, a broad topic for everybody, I am going to put it at the end of the podcast. So stick around to the end of the podcast if that's of interest to you. But uh, otherwise, we're going to roll right into my interview with John Finch. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with writer, producer, author John Finch, all the way from the UK. How are you doing, John? I'm fine, thanks. Considering my age, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's it's pretty exciting because you are actually the the first interviewee from across the water. So very very exciting. Oh really? Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Now, uh, for my Chuck podcast, I've I've talked to some people in in the UK and in Australia, but not on the TV writer podcast. So this will be cool, not just to hear from you across the water, but also to hear about your stories about writing in the UK. Um, I, I know that it's, it's certainly different than writing here in Canada and writing in the States, and I'd love to hear a lot more about it. Uh, but first, why don't we go way, way, way back? You were born as well. Um, Eric Caldor was, was born on the first day of the Great Depression, but you were born sometime around then as well, weren't you? Yes, 1925. 1925. Wow. Yeah. We had a general strike here about that time. Mm-hmm. And it uh, went on right, really, to a few years before the war. Mm-hmm. And, and so you were born in Liverpool, but uh, then you were brought up in Yorkshire. T tell me a bit about that. My father was an accountant. My mother was the daughter of a miner. So there was a bit, a bit of class difference there. When I was nine, my father disappeared, and we never saw him again. Wow. Or heard anything about him. I went from Liverpool, we went to live with my mother's grandparents in a, in the mining village where she was brought up. And of course, that was a big influence on me as a writer. The Jesuits always say that, uh, uh, give me a child at the age of seven and I'll show you the man. Yeah, but you could say the same about a writer. You start uh, as soon as you sort of conscious of things happening as far as your memory goes back it's the material for your future work mm -hmm. so so you did base some stories in in that sort of setting but you also had other experiences around that time you you had been in an orphanage for a time and you had been to 12 different schools and so you you bounced around a lot in your childhood yeah. um, how did that influence your stories yeah, influenced them uh, a lot. Um, I was watching, actually, last night, I watched uh, an episode that I'd written of a series called Sam, and I wrote this episode, set it in the orphanage. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I ran away from that, actually. It was so awful. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this episode uh, based on that incident. Mm. And uh, it was slightly everything else, you know. I mean, you... Nothing's ever lost if you keep things in your mind. And uh, when you're a writer, you just dig back into the past mm. all the time, I think, even when you're not conscious of it. Yeah, well, I know that you told a lot of stories about the war, and uh, that was 
Um, not a coincidence, I think, because when you were 16, you joined the Merchant Navy um, and you sailed out from Liverpool, or Liverpool in 1941. And how long were yeah. you with, serving in the Navy? I was in for uh, four years and I was uh, medically discharged in 44, mm -hmm. 1944. And all this came in useful when I did this series called Family at War. Mm -hmm. which was set in Liverpool and uh, was 52 hours, of which I wrote 30, and uh, I storied and edited the lot. Mm -hmm. And it took us round about three years to make it. Mm -hmm. And it sold all over the world. It had an enormous audience in the UK, probably the biggest ever, I think, about any uh, drama series. Yeah. So 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 we're we're jumping ahead quite a bit, but I guess that's okay. So talking about a family at war, um that came out in 1970 and uh and from what I understand Coronation Street had been the 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 number one um television television program in in the UK at the time and a family at war actually took over that spot. Um you created that series uh, t so tell me about when when you came up with the series, uh, how it was received, and and what that experience was like for you. Because that that was the first show that you created from scratch, right? It was the first one I created from scratch. But of course, for the first eight years of Coronation Street, I worked on it as writer, editor, and uh, for a time as producer. Mm -hmm. But that's really what put me on the feet as a writer, mm -hmm. writing a series. Of course, Coronation Street now is the longest-running serial in the world. Yeah, well, you, you started on Coronation Street in 1960 and, and were on that series for 10 years, and, and then it still kept on going and going and going. The 50th anniversary was last year. Wow. The sad thing is now when I... I've watched the old, old episodes, mm -hmm. and I'm about the only survivor. Wow. So after Coronation Street, um, you did do this uh, A Family at War series. Yeah. That was very well received. Uh, you made 52 one-hour episodes. Yeah. Interestingly, voted the best series ever on Norwegian television. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now there were a couple of comments made about that series that, that I wanted to ask you about. One was uh, by Sir Dennis Foreman. He said that it was the most cost-effective television series ever made. Well, what can you tell me about that? Granada, which was a producing company, mm -hmm. was owned by two brothers called the Bernsteins. They were very economical in their, their budget. We had a heck of a job making it within the budget uh, that we were allowed. Mm -hmm. And we only did it by simply controlling the amount of film that we did. We did the Second World War from beginning to end with only uh, two days' film each episode. No, you're kidding. Wow. I mean, today that, that it would, just couldn't happen. Um, yeah. And that's even with all our digital tools. Yeah. Actually, after I left Coronation Street, I produced a series called The System, that mm -hmm. was just before Family War. The budget on that was pretty awful. Mm -hmm. But I decided to do one episode all on film, and that ate 
practically all the budget. Oh. Oh, and the company were, weren't helpful. They refused to give me any more money. Uh-huh. So I went home, and in a couple of days, I wrote a two-hander, one-set play, that cost precisely what we had left in the budget. <laughs> so uh, I was quite shocked about that. Now, of course, the, the company were pleased. Uh, they were a difficult lot to please, but they were very pleased about that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, um, David Littiment, former head of ITV, um, called A Family at War a template for modern drama that still works today. Why, why would he have said that? What, what was that about it that, um, that was so effective? I think because it had a strong element of uh, self-contained stories within an episode. Apart from the serial element, mm-hmm. each episode had a self-contained quality. You didn't have to watch it. It was best to watch all from the beginning right to the end. But you didn't have to do that to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. We were able to use sex in the most economical way. Mm-hmm. And this is where a writer comes in on a big series like that. Your job isn't just formulating the stories, it's uh, keeping an eye on uh, how many sets you're using and how much storage space that the problems people have to store them in. Mm. And this all becomes part of the technique of writing for television. I noticed in one of your things, somebody was talking about the possibility of writers being executive producers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very good idea. Mm-hmm. You can keep a closer relationship with the director and the actors if you're in a, an executive capacity. Also, it gives the writer more status. Uh, because uh, we found in this country that the status of the writer has changed dramatically over a period. Mm-hmm. The writer's fee at one stage was about 20% of the total budget. Now it's about 2%. <laughs> wow. Mm. Wow. And so after A Family at War, and, and I should mention about A Family at War that, that uh, it did tremendously well around the world and continued to play even 20 years later. Yeah. In, in reruns. Yeah. But after A Family at War, in 1973, you created another very well-received series called Sam. Tell me about that one. That was 39 hours. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the lot. Wow. Every single episode of the 39 hours. Every single episode in three years. Wow. Uh, it was a better series, actually, than Family at War. It was uh, the best thing I've ever written, probably. Mm-hmm. It got a, quite, quite a few awards. Uh, had a good audi- uh, audience. Didn't sell overseas as much as Family at War, but it still sold in uh, quite a lot of the European countries. Australia, New Zealand did it five, uh, repeated it five times. So, wow, Thir- 39 hours all by yourself. I mean, that is just yeah. unheard of today, certainly. It was hard work. Yeah. I don't think anybody would be stupid enough to do it again today. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, well, I mean, at, at least uh, when you got those awards, they were 
Um, you could take whole credit for that. Well, never have then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Little uh, item about family war. I've always claimed that the family war made the money that enabled uh, Granada to do Brideshead Revisited. Wow. So now, does it work the same as in, in North America where, um, like, say, for instance, as a family at war played for 20, 30 years afterwards, would you get residuals from that? Yeah, I'm not very happy about that situation. And I've had to fight tooth and nail to get my uh, residuals from... Uh, Granada. I mean, I've had to threaten court action and that sort of thing. And the guild has stood behind me. Mm-hmm. And uh, my agent died uh, two or three years ago. I wasn't able to get another. So I was really left sorting the whole thing out myself. Wow. So after Sam, you did a few series from 1974 up to about 1989. What are the maybe highlights of, of that time? Yeah, I did a series at that time, after Sam, I'd lived all my life, more or less, in an industrial area. Mm-hmm. I decided that it was time to move on. We'd bought a, a farmhouse in the countryside, so I thought, well, the best thing I can do is to write an episode set in the place where we're moving to. Uh-huh. And that's what I did. Uh, it was called This Year, Next Year. And it was about someone who was weary of life in the metro- metropolis in London and uh, wants to move to the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So, uh, it did very well, actually, audience-wise. And that was a 13-episode miniseries? It was only 13, now, which was uh, not many for me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's enough. <laughs> and then since then, uh, there, there was The Spoils of War, Flesh and Blood, uh, The Hard Word, Capstick's Law. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about, about that time. After um, the next year, I was desperate to do something else with Granada because living in that general area, it was logical for me to work there. I looked for another series. The, the best thing I came up with, really, was at the end of Family at War, we stopped. Uh, Dennis Foreman, who was managing director, and I both refused to go on. Oh, no. We thought, we thought that was an entity, and, yeah. and we should stop there. But I came up with an idea of doing a series of life after the war hmm. called Spoils of War set in the countryside. Mm. In between doing these various things, uh, I did the odd players. Oh, cool. And then tell me about Flesh and Blood. Flesh and Blood was came out of the fact that at the time I fell out with Granada after Spoils of War because they cut my budget back. Mm-hmm. I just felt, you know, badly treated. So I decided to go try my uh, hand at the BBC. Mm-hmm. They'd been chasing me for quite a long time, following the success of Family War and Sam. So I decided to go and uh, do a series there while I was doing Spores of War. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So I found myself doing two series at once, one for the BBC and one for Granada. 
Wow. Well, that didn't endear me to Granada. Yeah. Because they were very jealous. They they were a very possessive company. They liked to feel that they owned a writer, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I won't like to feel free. They wanted me to be exclusive to them. Mm-hmm. Flesh and Blood was quite different to anything else I'd done. It had one of our most uh, popular elderly actresses, Tora Heard, mm-hmm. in it. It was about the management of a company and the family involvement in large cement works. So the industrial aspect was there. I was writing more about middle class people. Whereas in the past, most of my work had been a working class background. Mm-hmm. Flesh and Blood got a very good writer in the Observer who compared it to Dallas. Compared it to Dallas? Favorably. Wow. Well, they didn't like Dallas. Oh, no. And they thought Flesh and Blood was a great improvement on Dallas. Oh, wow. Uh, nice for me. The BBC had. In addition to the normal ratings, they had an appreciation index. So they didn't just ask people what they watched on a certain night, which is mm-hmm. what the ratings are. They asked them what they liked most. Mm. Flesh and Blood came out very high up, almost to the top of the appreciation index, but didn't do as well in the ordinary ratings. Mm. You can't go chasing big ratings all your life. I mean, if you want to be a writer, you've got to take chances. Mm-hmm. And I, I was quite happy with it. I did one series of it, and then the BBC liked it enough to ask me to do another. Mm-hmm. And then after that, at that time in this country, we were coming close to having a Another depression. Mm-hmm. Things were getting very bad. The the oil situation, you know, lights were being turned off on the motorways and so on to save fuel. Wow. It was getting really grim. And I thought I ought to write something about that. Mm-hmm. So I, that's where the hard word came from. Mm-hmm. The hard word is you're fired, you know. I mean, it's people being thrown out of work by bad situations. Mm-hmm. After the hard word, Catholic's Law was the first production by an entrepreneur called Eddie Shaw, mm-hmm. who was a newspaper proprietor and wanted to get in television. He worked, actually, for me at Granada as a floor manager, and he was a millionaire now. Oh, wow. <laughs> at first, it seemed, you know, very logical, and that uh, we'd get on, and, and it turned out that we didn't. We just didn't get on. Mm-hmm. So I resigned from that. Oh, yeah. And then, really, at that time, I began to get a bit disillusioned mm-hmm. with television. Yeah. Well, that was also, you were pr- pretty close to retiring at that point, right? Because you, that would have been, you would have been about 64, 65 at that time? Uh, well, yes. As much as I'd ever done retire, <laughs> I was retiring age. Yeah. But I'm now 86 and still writing. Yeah. And uh, actually, some of the stuff I'm writing now is an improvement on the 
stuff I was writing, you nailed everything. Uh huh. Well, so tell me about the last uh, last twenty years. So, so what have you been writing? I know that you wrote a book, uh, "Cut and Return." Cut and Return, yeah, which was a lousy title. It did actually sell out mm -hmm. and uh, got very well reviewed, but it was a terrible title. I'm now in the process of rewriting it with the prospect of it being reissued. Mm -hmm. Using the basics of it, the plot and the characters and everything, mm -hmm. but with a new title called uh, Dreams of Other Worlds. Yeah. And that would make a very good film, actually. Yeah, and you've also written a, a play for the theatre uh, called Joe. Um, have yeah. you written other things since then for the theatre? No, I, I wrote Joe, and I made it so difficult to produce that nobody's ever produced it. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that. I mean, they love the writing, but they say, you know, the production problems and such. Because I wasn't experienced in the theatre, you see. Mm -hmm. Totally brought up in television drama. Yeah. But what I'm doing at the moment is, I went back to the first thing I, things I ever wrote was poetry, like a lot of writers do. Mm -hmm. And I went back to poetry for a, a year, and I wrote about all oh, 50 poems, which have been broadcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I'm writing short stories, but I'm writing them as if they were for a television plays mm -hmm. or even a series. But to stand as a short story, but to have the potential of being in television. And uh, I'm finding a very good way of working, and I wished in the past that I'd done that, really, mm -hmm. because it just gives you a very good groundwork uh, to start on, you know. Mm -hmm. I've written about a dozen by now, and I would say there are three or four very good television series among that lot. Mm -hmm. The trouble is now, of course, that all, the only thing television is interested in now uh, is uh, cops and rubbers. And, uh, <laughs> That's not my field. Yeah. But that actually leads into, um, towards the end of uh, of the podcast, we usually talk about tips for um, beginning writers. And uh, and so looking back at your, at your career, um, say that you were talking to a very young version of yourself or a new writer today, what kind of advice would you give a new writer on, on how to develop their craft and, and how to break in? Well, I started as a writer when I was at sea. The um, women's volunteer services used to give every ship a tea chest full of books. And I used to read every damn book in the tea chest. And I thought, I want to do this. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And during the war, there was a great revival in poetry. So I started to write poetry then, and I wrote quite a lot of poetry. In fact, when I was in uh, New York in '43, I went round some of the publishers trying to hawk it, but they weren't interested. Uh -huh. uh, looking at the stuff afterwards, I can quite understand. But it was a good move. After the war finished, 
radio drama was very strong. Um, I was tremendously influenced by that. And I think, you know, that it's radio is a very much a writer's medium and a very good place to start as a writer. Mm-hmm. What really grabbed me about television so that I got really most interested in that was the plays of Paddy Chayefsky. Mm-hmm. He writes plays, of course, which are about real people. And that's really what interested me about television, was writing about real people. The first play I wrote called Dark Pastures, which was on television, that was set in the mining community. Mm-hmm. And the characters were real. Well, and that, that brings me to my, my last question, and, and, and this will be um, the end here. But uh, you created a number of very successful worlds, a very successful series. Um, can you can you tell me, when you approach creating a, a series from scratch, creating a new world of characters, what's your approach? How, how do you put that together? Uh, well, the first thing I think of is the characters and the setting in which characters exist. And uh, that gives me the story. You know, the, the story comes out of one character or a, a small group of characters in the process of thinking about them. That's the best way of going about it, really. Mm-hmm. Worked with me. Then again, of course, to become a professional, you've got to do work sometimes. It's not your thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, Coronation Street established me as a professional writer. But it wasn't really my thing. It was a way of earning a living and writing at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think when you're starting out, you should be worried too much about status, you know. Mm-hmm. Some very good writers in the UK turned their backs on television. But they were mostly uh, well-known novelists and people like that. The television could well have done with it, really, at the time, mm-hmm. to raise its standards. But they were too tough in house to do it. Later on, of course, when their novels weren't selling much, they were only too anxious to get into television. Uh-huh. And perseverance, you know, you've got to be prepared to put up with all sorts of problems. I mean, I spent five years in London working in a cellar off Baker Street Mm -hmm. doing bits of journalism simply to learn how to write. Mm -hmm. I think you've just got to grab at every opportunity. You've got to be absolutely determined to succeed. Otherwise, you know, you might as well not bother. Cool. Well, that's very, very good advice, and we've come to the end of our time here. Um, I do want to thank you so much for joining me from across the ocean, and uh, and I do wish you the best of luck. Well, thanks very much. I've enjoyed talking. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much, John. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. And that's all I have for today. I want to remind you about the contest to order Bite Size Television by Ross Brown Get your questions in by January 1st to mail at tvwriterpodcast.com and you just might win this book, An Insider's Guide to TV's Hottest Market, Reality TV by Troy DeVold. 
Um, I want to remind you about the website, tvrudderpodcast.com. Uh, you can go there for lots of other resources like web links, including links to a, a massive uh, free script library. Um, there's a database of TV writers on Twitter that has hit 900 writers and continues to climb. Speaking about Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle, and that's how you'll find out about the writers that are coming and lots of other stuff. You can go to the TV Writer Podcast Facebook group, and to get there, just go on to Facebook and search for, you guessed it, TV Writer Podcast. While you're there, if you do want to um, connect with me personally, you can find me as an admin on that page or just search Facebook for Graham A. Jones. Um, I do recommend if you want to connect either on Facebook or LinkedIn that you send a personal message with it, just letting me know how you found me. Otherwise, I don't know who you are. So please, please, I'd love to connect with you, but make sure you do send a personal message with that. But right now we're going to go on to video tips. Like I said, it's on setting up a PCI expansion enclosure, which might be a little specific and not related to your needs if this interests you. Uh, stick around. Otherwise, thanks for listening and watching uh, and have a great writing week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. A little bit about me and my qualifications. I'm a reality TV editor, colorist, and writer, and also post-production consultant located in Toronto. By February 2012, I will have edited and or produced 169 TV episodes, 40 webisodes, and 159 podcasts. That's 223 hours of content, and a good percentage of that in high definition. I'm what you would call a power user, and I'm constantly researching the highest performance systems. In this week's video tips, we're going to be looking at the TurboBox PCI expansion enclosures by NetStore, specifically the TurboBox Rack and TurboBox Pro. I should mention that NetStore is a sponsor of the podcasts that I do, um, that said, this is a completely fair review of their products. I have been using the TurboBox rack in my home studio and uh, have been really putting it through its paces. But anyway, what is a PCI expansion enclosure and why would you need one? I'm going to start with the, with the Mac side of things and I will get to the PC side of things. Mac Pros, I feel, are an excellent, excellent workstation. Very, very powerful, very, very reliable but they only have four PCI slots, specifically PCI Express. And why is that an issue? Well, just say, for instance, the Mac Pro doesn't come with external serial ATA. So you can add it by adding a PCI Express card. The Mac Pro does not have USB 3. So you can add it by adding a PCI Express card. One of your card slots is taken up by your graphics card. Usually it's a double width card. So because there are only four slots on the, the Mac Pro, what if you want to add a couple more? Say, for instance, a capture card like the ones by Blackmagic. I use a Blackmagic DeckLink Studio card, which actually takes up two slots itself. And what if you want to add, say, for instance, a storage controller like the ones from Highpoint. I use a Highpoint Rocket Raid 4320 with an internal to external adapter. And all of a sudden, that's a whole pile of slots. And then you also have issues with speed. Say, for instance, ones like a, a serial ATA or a USB 3 might only need what's called one lane of bandwidth. But you might have RAID cards that need eight lanes, which means they need a lot more bandwidth. 
Uh, they may even only fit in a certain type of slot, what's called an 8x or 8-lane slot. And another huge factor is something called um, GPU acceleration or um, CUDA technology. And you'll see programs like Adobe's After Effects and Premiere using this acceleration. Uh, if you're setting up a color grading suite using a Blackmagic DaVinci, you're going to need this kind of GPU acceleration. And what that means is it's using the graphics card, usually a big fat double width card, to number crunch for your program so that you can get much greater performance. That lets you handle bigger uh, file sizes, higher definition video, uh, even stereoscopic video for doing 3D and uh, working with cameras like the Red Cam. And adding this acceleration means you need to add slots. Well, something like a Mac Pro, you're stuck. You only got four. PC users, you're not necessarily safe. You might have seven slots, but what if three of them are only single lane bandwidth? Um, what if the orientation of your slots means that double width cards are blocking important lanes or important slots? And so um, I've had PC workstations that were just as limited because of the, of the way that the slots were oriented. So in comes NetStore, in comes a PCI expansion enclosure. And what it does is you, you basically plug a PCI Express card into one of your sockets in your computer. Say we'll take a Mac Pro as an example here. So you've got your, your regular graphics card, what's called the GUI card for a graphical user interface, They're your regular monitors. That'll be plugged into your bottom slot. And then your second fastest slot, you'll connect a card that goes to an external enclosure, like the NetStore TurboBox rack here. And it basically just gives you a whole pile of slots. You've got six additional full PCI Express slots. You can accommodate up to four double width graphics cards, which is unbelievably amazing. Um, or you can just install a whole bunch of stuff. Say, for instance, in mine, I've got, I've got a serial ATA card. I've got a Matrox H264 accelerator. I've got a High Point Rocket Raid. And again, I, with the internal to external adapter, I've got a, a battery backup for that that I wasn't able to fit inside my Mac Pro. And it's amazing. You don't even have to install a driver. Uh, according to your computer, all your computer knows is that it all of a sudden has a whole pile more slots. Now, technically, the, the TurboBox units are um, rated for what's called PCI Express 2.0, which is a, a newer PCI Express technology. And in, on the Mac side, uh, the older 2006 and 2007 Mac Pros are limited to uh, the PCI Express 1 technology. And then I believe it was in 2008, they came out with PCI Express 2, which... Uh, You've got more bandwidth features there. But interestingly, I've been testing this NetStore uh, TurboBox rack for a couple of weeks now on a 2006 Mac Pro. It's a quad 3.0, and it's been working great. I've seen no limitations for bandwidth. Uh, I'm using a 24-bay hard drive enclosure um, with some pretty big RAIDs connected to this High Point Rocket RAID uh, 4320 card, which is one of the fastest cards that that, uh, that High Point makes, and I've seen no limitations of bandwidth. It works perfectly, no hiccups, nothing. 
Uh, it's a very ad attractive enclosure. It's very light for a rack mount enclosure. I've had a number of rack mount enclosures before, and one of the first things that I always have to do is pull out the fans and install new quiet fans because these things are often like wind tunnels. They're so loud. One of the things I love about this net store, I powdered it up, tur turned it on. They use quiet fans, <laughs> so I didn't have to replace the fans. Now, see, I did need to replace the fans. They're what's called hot swappable, so I can easily pull them out and replace them if I need to, even while the unit's still running. I usually wouldn't do that. I would usually turn it off, but hey, it's nice to know that I could do that. Uh, another thing about the net store is that it's very easy to open and install the cards. Now, one gotcha that I would mention, uh, it's not a big thing, but there's a little bit of metal on the end of each of the PCI slots when you get the net store initially, and they're a little bit hard to remove. What I would do is take a slotted screwdriver, stick it in the groove, and then gradually go back and forth, work it back and forth until you feel the metal start to give, and then you can pull those out. Not a big deal. Just wanted to mention that. Um, but other than that, these things just, it's plug and play. You, you put in that PCI card, you install your cards in the turbo box, you turn it on, and according to your Mac, you've got all of these extra cards. Now, one comment, one question you may have, you may say, well, I don't understand. This connects to an 8X PCI Express slot in your computer, which gives you eight lanes of bandwidth. How is it that I could say, for instance, install four double width 16 lane cards and they're all fitting through this eight lanes? Well, the idea is that even though technically these these cards that you might install are rated for a certain bandwidth, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily hogging that much bandwidth at any one time. Even for these CUDA cards, they take instructions in. Then they do a whole pile of number crunching in the card, and then they send data back. So they're not necessarily using that entire pipe at any one time. And what I've found, as I've installed these these cards, they, they play well with each other. Even for really high-performance uh, needs, they they share that bandwidth really well. And, and really, eight lanes of bandwidth is 40 gigabits of information. Uh, we're not doing a whole lot yet, most of us, that can fill that kind of bandwidth. So say, for instance, you're a, a gamer and you want to um, install multiple graphics cards for, for, uh, for greater gaming performance, whether you have huge graphic um, needs and you're using something like Adobe's Premiere Pro or After Effects, whether you're doing color grading with Blackmagic DaVinci, whether you have a lot of storage and you need to install multiple RAID cards to access a number of enclosures, these TurboBox units just work. They're attractive, they're very light, they're quiet, they're easy to use. Um, there are some options available. You can uh, choose a, a 1000 watt power supply. That's if you're, if you're planning on installing a number of um, GPU cards, or you can get a more modest 400 watt power supply if you're just using, say, for instance, RAID cards that don't have, um, that don't need a lot of power. For the TurboBox Pro, you can get a short one and a half meter cable connecting to the, the unit, or you can order a three meter cable um, if you have to have it a little further away. So the, the, the short one is one and a half meter, the, uh, the long one is three meter. 
And for the TurboBox rack, you have the option of going up to a five meter cable. So that can be helpful, say for instance, if you have it in uh, an adjacent room or if you have it further away from your workstation. But all in all, I've been putting this thing through its paces and it just works. They're very inexpensive uh, relative to the other PCI expansion enclosures that are out there. And I can't see any reason why you wouldn't want to use a TurboBox by NetStore. You can find them at netstore.com.tw. Go to the products page and look for TurboBox. You can find all of the options there. Highly recommended. This has been Video Tips with Gray Jones from the TV Writer Podcast. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. <laughs>